Listening Dog Media. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, well, there's a short intro, and uh, when I say hello, that will be when we'll start the conversation, okay? Right, brilliant. Oh, sorry, that was disgusting. <laughs> it was, though. <so, laughs> sorry, here we go. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Nobody wanted to take care of the music, and people who did, I never really liked the music, so I'll take care of the music. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. I get a lot of satisfaction out of my art by doing it professionally. If people are coming and paying money to see me perform, I've got to give them a great show and be really good at How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And I was following Groove Armada and too many DJs who were obviously massive. So, you know, the pressure was on. And here with me, a DJ, producer and songwriter who had his first hit single in the summer of 1991. A lot of the things that have happened through my career have been very happy accidents. He wore a mask before masks were a thing. If you ever put a hood up and pull the cord, you look like a bit of a wally, which I guess we did anyway. And was a key figure in the 90s rave scene. I wanted to incorporate all the bits that were in, tracks that were around at the moment with the crowd noise, the big sub bass, the break beats, the acidy noises. I had the option to either become a butcher in the village where I lived or to follow a music thing. I've got to that point where I feel I can do it myself. I know I'm playing other people's music, but it's just such a buzz. From Alternate, hello, Mark Archer. How you doing? Mark, you're famously from Staffordshire, which has never exactly been known for its music scenes. And I say that coming from Shropshire myself. Were there any advantages or disadvantages as a musician to not being in London or the South? I think it's a Midlands thing more than, uh, you know, just Staffordshire. You tend to get kind of missed by the big scenes that were going on down in London and up in Manchester. And living in a very small village, there was no one really who was into the same kind of music that I was into. So you really had to go searching for things. There's no record shop there. So I'd stumbled upon the whole breakdance thing just by going into the local town just to get away from being in the, the village that I was stuck in, to be honest. Were you always into music as a youngster? I was into pretty much everything, you know, any kind of music that was played on, on the radio. If it was a good song, I liked it. So up until we moved from the little village where I was, I was born, I liked pretty much anything that was going on because my mom and dad always had like Radio 2 playing all the time. Um, but then when we moved 
you had to be into heavy metal or you'd get beaten up. So <laughs> my tastes quickly changed to protect myself. But, I, you know, I got into like the whole heavy metal thing. This was like late 70s. And then was into like the two-tone scar thing. It seemed like the year who were younger than us at school, they were into it. And so, we, you know, you heard it at school discos and, and what have you. And I got into that. But it's only like later in life that I realized there were certain kinds of music on radio that I preferred more than others. And that turned out to be, you know, things like Chic and like the early rap stuff. When did you start making music? It was 1988 when I first attempted to make music, but it wasn't like a serious attempt. You know, this is what I want to do. Just listening to some of the electro stuff that I was buying at the time, I always wondered how they did certain production techniques and bought a, a, a sampling board. It was a Casio SK-1. Basically, I had like a little button on there and you press that, held it next to a speaker and sampled the noise. But it wasn't until like 88 when I bumped into a guy I knew who was doing the, the, the old body popping thing from a few years previous. And he'd got a set of decks and said, why don't you bring your keyboard around and we'll just jam some tracks. So he was like cutting between two different drum tracks and we were playing like very primitive bass lines and chords and stuff over the top not thinking anything of it at all. And the same year, a recording studio opened in Stafford where there were bands who were doing like covers, Duran Duran, that kind of stuff. And we took the cassette in and he signed us up there and then. Wow, a life-changing day. Yeah, a lot of the things that have happened through my career have been very happy accidents. You know, bumping into people who just say, why don't you come around and do some jamming and then go into the studio and being signed and then, being in a club and then meeting the label boss of a label in Birmingham and getting signed to them. So it's loads of happy accidents. When was Nexus 21 born? Well, that, that started in 1989. So myself and Dean, the guy I knew from the breakdance days, we'd been working together all through 88. We originally went to the studio, wanted to do Acid House and the studio owner, he was an older soul DJ. And he got into record producing and he basically wanted to try and chase whatever was going on at the time. So the things like Bomb the Bass and Mars, Pump Up the Volume were in the charts. So he wanted to try and do that kind of sample scratching hip hop vibe. So we ended up doing a few hip hop tracks first. And it wasn't until later in the year when he saw that Acid House was getting into the charts that he said, yeah, you can do some uh, Acid House. So we did various different projects. And then in 89, I'd been listening to a lot of like the Detroit techno. And that's when the, the Nexus 21 thing was born. And what would you say was your grand plan then? Did you have one? Well, I had the option to either become a butcher in the village where I lived or to follow a music thing. And my dad gave me the choice. A lot of dads may have said, you know, you need to bring a wage in. And the music thing wasn't bringing any money in at all. But he said, there's always going to be that what if, if you don't follow it. So it's totally up to you. And uh, I followed the music thing just to see where it, it went. We had no idea whether any of the music was actually selling. You know, we didn't get any like sales reports, anything like that from the label that we first signed to. So we didn't know who was playing it, but I used to always take a copy of, of something that I'd done along with me if I ever went out to a club and very occasionally you'd turn up and the DJ had got it, which was a nice feeling. You knew someone had bought your record. 
Were you playing any live shows? I think the first live thing we did as Nexus 21 was in 1990 um, at a club called The Dome in Birmingham. And it was like a 100% live thing with the, the drum machine and keyboard. And they projected it onto a screen behind us. So after we'd finished, my girlfriend at the time came up and said, that was really boring, just watching two lads looking down at pieces of equipment pressing buttons, which was when they decided that when Alternate happened to make the live shows a lot more lively. Were you good back then in those early days? <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that I'm good at anything. I've not got that level of confidence. But the Nexus 21 thing, there did seem to be a kind of, you know, following for the group, especially in the Midlands. I mean, later we did a track called Self-Hypnosis, which was dubbed the ice cream tune because the main riff in it sounded like an ice cream van and people did like this particular dance to it. And it seemed to gain a decent following before the alternate thing took off. We were doing quite a few Nexus 21 PAs at various raves. Were you entirely self-taught? Yeah. I mean, I've never been a fantastic keyboard player. That was the thing where at the studio, I was the guy who had the ideas and the same with Dean. He was a DJ and we both took him piles of records and sampled various bits, And but neither of us were very good at playing keyboards. And the studio brought in two guys, Chris and Andy, who could play keyboards and work computers and stuff. And Dean eventually started working with Andy and I was started working with Chris. He wasn't really into dancing music at all. So I'd be taking, you know, records in there and saying, can you play something similar to this? Or, you know, that riff you're doing, can you go up at the end? So I'd explain how I wanted things and eventually we'd get to riffs that we liked. But all the, all the engineering and, and stuff like that, it was all following either the engineer who was originally at the studio, writing it down on a notepad, learning how to sample stuff. What happened to Nexus 21 and how did that become alternate for you? We were doing the two simultaneously um, when Blue Chip Studios were about to go boom and we hadn't been paid any royalties or anything like that. So the guy who owned the place said, I'll give you the keys for a couple of weeks. You can have some studio time. And we went in there and recorded about nine tracks. And because I'd been going to raves and, and different clubs, there was more influences to what we produced in those two weeks than the Nexus 21 thing, which was we were really aiming it at the Detroit techno kind of sound. So when we signed to Network Records in Birmingham, they said, have you got any other material? You know, they bought all the Nexus 21 material and we got some new stuff that we've recorded. And we gave them this stat and they said, we like it, but it doesn't sound like Nexus 21. And Chris used to be in a rock band at his school called Alienate. So we said, we'll call it Alienate. And they picked eight tracks off this dat and it just went straight to finish copies, called us up and said, the copies are at the, the office. Do you want to come and have a look at them? Opened the box, pulled the record out and it said alternate at the top. We're like, you've got the name wrong. And they're like, well, it's, it's a bit late now. So that's how the name came about. And that's how the group came about purely because what we'd recorded didn't sound like Nexus 21. And there was like a bit of a purist thing going on where people would complain that, oh, that's not very nexus -y, So Tell me about the masks and the boiler suits. Was this at that time too? That was around 1991 when that happened, because we were doing a lot of gigs as Nexus 21. We'd even done a tour where it was network records and warp records. Uh, LFO, Nightmares on Wax, get Nexus 21. And 
we did a gig at the Eclipse in Coventry early on in 91 as Nexus 21. So it was myself and Chris with the same amount of X-Stands, keyboards, drum machines all wired up. And then when Infiltrate, which was the, the second alternate single, the Eclipse asked us if we'd do an alternate PA. And we didn't want to go on stage and look exactly the same as Nexus 21. So my brother was in the RAF at the time and asked him, you know, have you got any like stuff that equipment we can cover ourselves up with? And he gave me two of the NBC suits. But if you ever put a hood up and pull the cord, you look like a bit of a wally, which I guess we did anyway. So we decided to cover the rest of our face up with a dust mask. And because of the whole acid house thing with the day glow and everything, I sprayed them yellow and put the A on for alternate. And it was just to cover ourselves up for that one gig. And then the the image kind of stuck. Mark, I want to try and transport you back now to the summer of 1991 and when Infiltrate was kind of getting everywhere. What was the build-up to that first Top 40 single, Lightboy? I mean, again, it was a bit of an accident, that single. We were asked to do a, a Nexus 21 remix of a track in the studio. Uh, so we went in, did the remix. And so we had quite a few hours studio time left. So we decided to make a, a new alternate track. And I wanted to incorporate all the bits that were in, tracks that were around at the moment with the crowd noise, the big sub bass, the breakbeats, the acidy noises. So we put that together, again, not thinking anything would really happen with it. But because we'd done an eight tracker, it's great value for money if a DJ can buy eight tracks where most of them are playable rather than spending the same amount of money on one American import and you're only having the one track to play. So the first EP did really well. So people were kind of waiting for the follow-up. So that already created a bit of a buzz about it. Then when it came out on promo and it was getting a lot of play at raves, the label were telling us, you know, this is doing pretty well. Then we got told that there's a good chance we might be outside the top 40. And Mark Goodyear started supporting it on radio. I mean, he even did a gig. It was at the Dome again in Birmingham and it was a, a Wednesday night and Wright said Fred were on, who were unheard of at the time. We were obviously unheard of at the time. The Cookie Crew had been in the chart a couple of times, so they were quite well known. And we did this Wednesday night gig and, and played Infiltrant. It went down brilliantly. We ended up just getting into the top 40 from going from tracks where we had no idea who was playing them to Two years later, all of a sudden we're in the chart. It was just a bit, you know, mind-blowing. Okay, Mark, time now for your questions from the box. A box of 45s here and the question on each, and I'll pick out five, ready to do the first. You say when, and I'll head into the box. Okay, when? Can you name your best gig ever? There's been loads, but I think that, the one that really stands out, I played the Arcadia stage at uh, Glastonbury, the big robotic spider, and I was following Groove Armada and too many DJs who were obviously massive. So, you know, the pressure was on and I was closing the stage on the Sunday night. So with a place like Glastonbury, you know, if you're not feeling what's being played, there's so much choice to go to another stage. So I had to really, you know, pile on the pressure and try and keep the crowd there because there was between 35 and 40,000 people there. Um, so that one really stands out. How did back then playing raves compare to playing festivals? The setup's quite similar, maybe not as chaotic on stage as it used to be, but I think 
with the raves, everyone was there for one certain kind of music. Whereas at a festival, there's so many different styles that are getting played and choice. Whereas you go to a rave like at Donington Park and there'd be 10,000 people in this massive warehouse and they're all there just for that kind of music. And I think being on stage then and seeing that many people dancing, you know, to your own music, that was like a bit of a moment where you realise actually you might be doing something right. Was Brave as anarchic as punk, would you say? It got the whole similar DIY ethic, you know, where people went out and did it all for themselves. You know, there's a lot of the musicians weren't classically trained musicians. The equipment, everyone was finding out their own ways to use things, making mistakes, but creating like different techniques all the way through the whole rave scene. People even pressing up their own music and selling it out the back of a van, you know, with their mobile number hand stamped on it because people just wanted a part of that scene. And, you know, if you couldn't get your record signed by a big label, you just went out and did it yourself. Your next question from the box now, you say when and I'll dip in. When? How does DJing make you feel? I know I'm playing other people's music and it is very humbling when you are basically just playing other people's tunes and putting them together and you see the reaction, but it, it's just such a buzz, similar to the live thing where obviously you're playing your own music, but I try not to think too hard about how I put stuff together. People will say, oh, I've never thought about mixing those two tunes together. And that was a stroke of genius putting those two together. And I think it's more just knowing the tunes. Obviously, you know, I've been playing the, those songs for the past 30 years, so you should really know them inside out. But it doesn't matter how big the crowd is, you know, even if you've got like a small venue, just seeing those people, you know, going for it while you're playing. It's, it's phenomenal, Buzz. Another question from the box now then. You say when, Mark? Okay, when? If you could do it all again, would you do anything differently? There's obviously things that I wish were different, but if I'd have changed anything at all, I probably wouldn't be where I am now. You know, that goes with life in general rather than just recording. I wish I'd learned the industry a lot more. I've always been just happy with making music. You know, I was just happy with a record at the end result. So never really paid that much attention to the whole business side of it. And that's something I wish I had have done. How do you think life might have been different if you had? Um, the past few years may not have been so much of a struggle. I mean, everyone assumes that you have a, a record in the charts and you're made for life, which, you know, certainly isn't the, the way at all. We were successful in the early 90s, but by the time it came to the late 90s, you know, I was DJing for like £100. And uh, when you lose a lot of confidence because you don't know where you're going in the industry, it can affect relationships, which it did. And the past 20, 30 years, you know, have been, uh, there's been a lot of struggles. I think if I'd had learned the industry more, I'd have maybe made some more savvy decisions than I have done. I should give you this opportunity now to plug your merch, which I know does still do well for you. Yeah, I mean, the merch was, it was just something that we were told people who want T-shirts. And there's been obvious wrangles with the whole alternate thing, but it, it got to the point where people again were asking for the merch, did we still have any stocks of the old T-shirts, which these things were from like 1992. 
I probably knocked off all of the designs that we used to do myself. So we decided to remake some of them. Recently, I've uh, had help from a brilliant company who've done uh, an anniversary version of the jackets that we used to sell back in 92. And, you know, to see them go so quickly was nice. It just shows you there is still a lot of support for the brand. Where's the best place for people to buy that merch if they're interested? Our main line of merchandise um, is on a, a website called Rejuve. So if, if you just search for Alternate and Rejuve, it'll come up. And that is the main place where we do all our merchandise. DJ, DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. Any kind of creative person, they're just the same as anybody else and might not be fantastic at dealing with a lot of people asking questions. Even people that we knew, you'd be hanging around with them and then you put the suit on them like, no way, it's you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Back into the box for a next question for you, Mark. Question four. Say when. Okay, yeah. You, you may have already answered this one to a point anyway. Is there a downside to life as a DJ? Um, people often say that once you're in the public eye, you've kind of asked for the invasion of privacy. And I don't think that's true because, you know, a lot of people who make music or do art or whatever, you know, any, any kind of creative person, they're just the same as anybody else and might not be fantastic at dealing with a lot of people asking questions all the time. I've seen quite a few DJs who, you know, were going to blow up really big and then all of a sudden disappear because the sheer level of DJing that they had to do and the interviews, etc. A lot of people don't realise that I'm always been quite a shy person. So I always have to give myself a kick up the backside to actually do things. You know, if someone says, oh, we should do a track together and I'll say, yeah, 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 but never act on it. And then I have to tell myself, you know, you need to do this. Um, a lot of people, you'll get into a club in times when I've been carrying two record boxes and you've just got through the door and straight away people are asking you about samples and where did you get this from and et cetera, you know, where you'd just like to go in and put your stuff down and, you know, relax a bit because you are nervous before a gig. But there's the flip side to it where, you know, these people are your fans and without fans, you wouldn't have a career. So you have to be nice. And you have to try and make sure that you make time for people who are supporting your work. For sure. Back into the box now, Mark, for your final question. And if you say when, I'll pull one out. Okay, when? Mark, which do you enjoy most, making music as a producer, being in a band, or playing music as a DJ? I think I enjoy DJing the most. Being in a, in a band thing, um, I tended to work with other people because of the lack of self-confidence. So I always thought if I was with somebody else, you know, it, it'd take a bit of the onus off me and, you know, maybe they'd bring something to it that I didn't think I had. And working relationships are very much like, you know, life relationships where 
you meet someone because of maybe a common interest, you start working together. But when you spend a lot of time with that person, it's like moving in with someone, you suddenly realize maybe they're not the person you thought they were and cracks in the relationship start. There's things about the person you may not like, etc. So that they're not always wonderful relationships. Whereas the DJing, now I do it myself. It's just me. And I've only got myself to blame if I'm crap on occasion. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, nice. I've got to that point where I feel I can do it myself. Um, and, and I enjoy it a hell of a lot more. Do you think that there's something about the sense of anonymity as a DJ too that uh, appeals to you? I mean, wearing the, the suit really did give you the ability to be a bit larger than life while we were on stage. In a lot of reviews or interviews, we were called cartoonish. And I think that, that's because you have the way we acted on stage. We didn't perform, as it were, live where, you know, things were actually coming out of the keyboards. So we over-exaggerated the keyboard playing, you know, like we were karate chopping the keyboards. That was a whole part of the alternate persona. But it, it got to the point where people didn't even realize there was people inside those suits. You know, it was just the two suits. That was alternate. You know, even people that we knew, you'd be hanging around with them at a club and then you'd put the suits on them like, no way, it's you. So it, it kind of made you into a different person. You were in Bizarre Inc. for a while, weren't you? That was just before the start of Nexus 21. So myself and Dean... We'd done the hip hop and we, we did uh, the Acid House album together. We did breakbeat albums. And then we wanted to do a more technery kind of project. So came up with the name Bizarre Inc. We recorded an album and did one 12 inch. And then for some reason, Dean wanted to work solo. So I got a bit of a heave ho out of the band. And unfortunately, away from my job as well as the studio engineer, but you know, a matter of months later, I called the studio up and said, I wanted to do my own techno project, you know, would it be possible? And that's when they paired me up with Chris and we started Nexus 21. So I, I was first, say six months in, in Bizarring. How was doing Top of the Pops? Absolutely surreal. For a program that I watched through the seventies and eighties as a kid, and then being on there and the fact that it was filmed where EastEnders was filmed as well. And Sid Owen, who played Ricky, was into his radio stuff, apparently. So he was always sat like on the opposite stage to where you were, if he knew there was any rave groups in at all. And obviously you're in a small studio where there's like, you know, real pop stars in there. Oh my God, it's Tina Turner and stuff like that. You know, we got to meet Nirvana, who just come out with uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. You know, when people say, who's the most famous person you, you've met, and you say Kurt Cobain, you know, it's a bit of a winner. You win. Um, did you have any kind of conversation with him? It was a very brief one. They just kicked all the equipment off the stage, and some of their fans had jumped on there, and then they ushered, like, most of the crowd out. And it was just while it was kind of ending and people were leaving, they were just explaining why they did that where they didn't sing he didn't sing properly and didn't play the guitar properly because of you know wanting to save his voice for bands but it was it was a very brief thing and I was being the the shy one in the the group I was kind of stood at the back anyway what a moment though in a incredible career Mark I've got one last question for you it's the end of the world and you have to play the last three records on earth what would those three records be? Crikey, that's an ask. I mean, one of my go-tos is Night Writers, Let the Music Use You. 
to Franklin Knuckles production. That record is in the right conditions almost brought me to tears, you know, when I've when I've played it out. So that one, if it was an eclectic selection, um, Mirror in the Bathroom by the Beat, which is also a massive favourite of mine, and probably Everybody Dance by Chic, because I don't think there's anything by Chic that I don't like. And what a way to go. Everybody dance, Chic. Fantastic choices. Mark Archer, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.